So this morning, we are going to look at John 17. We're going to continue to look at the, what's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. I had planned to go from verses, uh, from verse 6 to 26. But listen, when God starts talking to God, things get a little deep. <laughs> and I have found that as I tried to trudge out this entire passage, most of the commentators, I didn't find any commentators who did all this in one sermon. So I thought, well, you know, if I'm as inexperienced as I am, you know, I, I should probably follow suit. And then I, I just had to because the depth and the richness of this passage is unbelievable. And you would imagine it would be if God speaks to God and you get to listen on their conversation. That it would take a slightly higher degree of intelligence. I mean, everything in the Bible is sacred and holy and inerrant. That's our, we believe that. But there's, there's a reason why many theologians over the years have called this chapter in the Bible the Holy of Holies. And why one man I read, a, a, a preacher theologian, I can't recall his name now, that Kent Hughes talked about, had written 47 messages, I believe, on chapter 17. Um, and another man had written apparently uh, 500 volumes. It, it just gets really, really deep when God speaks to God and you get to listen in. Um, but I, I want to move to a simpler question for you, kind of, which is this. I want to start with this question as we look at John 17. How did you get here today? I don't mean did you drive. I mean deeply, life-wise. Like, how did you get to church? Why, why are you here? Why do you, why do you care about this thing? The Bible, why do you care about this book? Why do you care about the man that we sing to, who no one in this room has ever seen face-to-face? Why do you care about this body? Why are other believers special to you in ways that other people are not? Well, one very true answer is that you're here today because of today's passage. That this prayer that Jesus prayed 2,000 years ago, it, it is the reason why you're here today. It, it's not enough that Jesus died and rose for you. You had to hear about him dying and rising for you to be saved by him dying and rising for you. That's the way the gospel works. And, and in order for that to happen, you had to hear it from those who heard it. And from those others who'd heard it. And others who'd heard it. And others who'd heard it. Somehow that message from these first apostles, it got to you today. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Over 2,000 years. These 11 men, and later Paul, who will be an apostle of Christ, untimely born as he says, these apostles who really saw and really touched and really beheld and then really preached and passed down this message of Jesus Christ and, and, and basically recorded and said what ultimately became our New Testament. These apostles who really did die testifying that they saw and heard him as he rose from the dead. They got their message to you. That's why you're here today. Down through all the generations, they got this message to your parents, parents, and their parents, and their parents. Maybe for some of you, it goes all the way back to St. Patrick in Ireland. It might for me. And whoever got it to him, and whoever got it to him. But they got this message to you. Before cell phones, before the internet, it made it. And, and when it got to you, God opened up your heart, your spiritual ears to hear it and believe it. But listen. For all of that to happen, the apostles and you had to become the object of Jesus' prayer. 
that we're going to read about today. You had to be singled out by him. And to get here today and to be here still today after you heard the gospel, you've had to have been kept safe by his prayer. From Peter the apostle to you, there's an unbroken line of witnesses and those who would benefit from those witnesses that goes back 2,000 years. We're living proof that this prayer of Jesus has been answered. Jesus prayed in a way that secured the lives of Peter and the apostles. And through them, onward, 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 it has secured and made possible the spiritual lives of all of us sitting here today. And it's going to secure our future as well as we pay attention to his prayers, we pay attention to the substance of his prayer. And I I hope that's what we'll see more of today. So let me pray briefly, and then we'll continue to unpack this word. Lord, I, I, I pray today that you be glorified. Lord, as As you know, I have wrestled with this text. Um, I have wrestled, Lord, with weakness. I have wrestled with uh, gifts um, that are, Lord, fallible. And I've wrestled with a heart that struggles with sin. But, Lord, I have wrestled. And um, and now I I just pray, God, that you would deliver to your bride nourishment and food that is eternal life through your word and that you would do this for your glory and for our good. God, thank you that if I've learned nothing else from studying this passage, it's more deeply how good your glory is for us and how worthy you are to be glorified. And so, Lord, be glorified for that is what brings you pleasure, Lord, and that is what brings us joy. It is what brings us life. Be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Oh, okay. I just was going to use it as, a, as something to hold up, but, but that's okay. But thanks, buddy. Andrew Pennington, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. So, um, so if you recall when we were last in John 17, we started this uh, many, many weeks ago, and we, we paused. And when we started, Jesus had started this prayer in the upper room with his disciples finishing his discussions with them, going to the cross, he turns to the Lord, he turns to his father and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And, and, and then he talks about what eternal life really is. It's knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this desire of his heart is that God would be glorified through his going to the cross, laying down his life, rising from the dead. God would be glorified in his life. And that that glory would be revealed to those that God had given them, that it would be eternal life to them as they know God intimately through the glory that's revealed about God through Jesus Christ in his life. Jesus anchors this whole prayer that we're looking at in John 17. The entire chapter, John 17, is one prayer. And Jesus anchors the whole prayer in the beginning of the prayer with the goal of God's glory. He prays for God's glory to be unveiled to those that God came to save, that they would know God and they would know Jesus, which is eternal life in itself. If you remember four weeks ago, I believe we defined God's glory as this, his perfection and worth expressed outwardly to the universe. Or as John Piper says, the glory of God is the going public of his infinite worth. 
The glory of God is the going public of God's infinite worth. It's the showing forth of all that's true about God. And it's, it, it shows forth when God is glorified, he is seen. It's, it's incomplete if, if the people don't see it. And so when we talk about God being glorified, we're talking about it actually being seen and savored and celebrated and experienced by those who see it. And this, this is how people are saved. We, we talked about this weeks ago. It's how the destruction of sin and death and the fall are reversed. And this makes beautiful unifying sense out of Scripture. The more I study the Bible, the more I marvel at its unity from beginning to end. Truths just don't bump into each other. They just help each other. They just hold each other's hands. And if you look at Romans 1, Romans 1 tells us that ever since the fall, mankind has been self-willingly blind to the glory of God. And that that's our problem. That that is the premier initial problem that leads to every other problem. We have willfully turned away from seeing God for who he is on purpose in order to live by lesser glories of our own choosing. That is our problem. That we have denied who God is to our own hearts. We have refused to admit it. In another way to say it, we have blinded ourselves to the glory of God. Everybody following me so far? If you're not following me, just raise your hand and I'll just start the whole thing again. But in all seriousness, I just, oh, Miles, <laughs> he raised his hand. All right. Turn, there's nothing, let's talk afterwards. You, you called me on it, called my bluff. But listen, th- this thing, this, this, this disease of willful blindness, it isn't something anyone has to teach anyone in here. It's something we're born with now, after the fall. Adam was not born with it. But once, once he gave into that sin, and he in, he, in him was all that we would become, in, the, in him was the potential for the whole human race, we, we are born blind, willfully, to God's glory. It, and you don't have to teach it. I, I woke up this morning. My, my little boy, John Christopher's birthday is coming up really soon, and we're going to have a great cake. And he's so excited. And this morning I, I woke up, uh, I went upstairs, and all the kids were in bed. I was downstairs working on the message. All the kids were in, in the bed with Jen. And, and, and John Christopher was so excited about his birthday. And I said, John Christopher, your birthday's coming up. You're going to have awesome cake, aren't you? And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Matthew, my two-year-old, he's two he says immediately, my birthday and my birthday cake. Yes, my birthday is coming. My cake is coming. It's not your birthday cake, Matthew. It's like, no, I mean, yeah, in six months, but you don't really. But Matthew was saying me, my glory. I mean, you know, he, he wasn't even neutral about it, right? Like, okay, no one's taught him, Matthew, the glory of God would call you to display the character of your Savior, who would love your brother and say, I'm so excited, John Christopher, about your birthday and birthday cake. Nobody had to teach Matthew to say, not just, hmm, interesting, he's excited about his birthday. I wonder what that means in some Spock-like way. No, he wasn't neutral. He said, this is, a, this is my birthday, my birthday cake. Now, that's funny anecdote, you know, on, on a church on Sunday. But when it happens in a 44-year-old father, husband, and pastor, no kidding, it's horrible. It destroys. It destroys the heart of, of his wife. It destroys the hope of his children. It destroys the work of his church. And it happens in me. And it's terrible. And so this willful blindness to God's glory... Living for God, living as a reflection of who God is, 
It's our common disease that's destroyed our race. And therefore, if that's true, then God's redemptive plan is not only to pay for sin by punishing Christ in our place, it is to give us back the sight of God's glory, the knowledge of who he is by opening our eyes once again to how beautiful and worthy and awesome he is. And so, Jesus begins his prayer. Allow me to glorify you by going through this death that's going to show everyone how holy you are. It's going to show everyone how loving you are. That people may be saved. And and I've explained all this because as we move into the next part of this prayer, and really as we go through the entire prayer, I believe it's important that we keep this first part, this appeal from the Son for the glory of the Father through the revelation of the Son's life and work. That we keep that in view. Because I believe that that is the hermeneutical key. That's the, that's the way to interpret and see this prayer rightly. That really strewn throughout this whole prayer is this prayer for God's glory in the life of Christ elaborated on it's multifaceted it has different dimensions but if we take god's glory as and define it as the saving revelation of god through jesus christ i believe we'll be able to understand this prayer we will we'll be able to be served by the prayer i believe we'll be able to come alongside and pray the prayer you know a, a lot better so so that's why i went back over this again so now moving on into the passage we're going to start with verse six holding on to that hermeneutical key of of God's glory in the life of Jesus Christ revealed to the world as the the saving goal of this prayer. We're going to move on. So starting with verse 6 through 10, Jesus, D.A. Carson calls this, the the heading he'd he'd probably put here is why Jesus prays for the disciples. So I've I've just kind of borrowed the thought there. The heading's probably different, but but I'm I'm calling verses 6 through 10 why Jesus prays for the disciples. It's the best way I can understand to understand this. And here's what Jesus says. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Jesus feels it's important as he moves from praying for his glory to praying for the disciples to, to identify them to his father. I, I, you know, I, I've struggled to understand exactly why is he doing this. And the best thing I can come up with is, is there is a holy introduction of sorts that is going on. That Jesus is carrying these men to his father. He's not just saying, Jesus, do this, do this, do this. He's saying, Lord, I'm bringing these men before you. Here's who they are. Here's, where, here's why we care about them. Here's why they are important. And he says, first, because they have seen your glory in me. They've believed what you said about me, Lord. They haven't rejected it. And Lord, that that shows that 
that you have given them to me. It's the only way they would have received my message. Because before they could receive it, you had to work in them. And now you've given them to me, Lord. And he says, I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Name is, is very close to glory in this context. That's why I keep harping on this glory thing. Name here represents the character, the authority, the truth about the person. So Jesus says, I've shown them who you are. And when the name goes public, when the name is displayed, God is glorified, right? He says, I've given them the words that you gave me. They have received them. They have come to know in truth that I came from you. The world has rejected me, says Jesus, but these, these have not because you gave them to me. Now, a couple of takeaways from this first part. See, see again how Jesus ushers his people before God. Men and women, he does that for you today. He ushers you into God's presence. You, you, you never stand before God's presence alone. And, and I mean that in the best possible way. You never could stand in God's presence alone and live because of your sin. But you never have to stand and you never will stand in God's presence alone. You are covered by his righteousness, the righteousness of his son. You never have to come into God's presence thinking you're going to be an object of his wrath when your coming into God's presence is mediated by his beloved son who covers you with his righteousness. First Timothy 2 tells us that there is one mediator between God and man, God and humanity, and that is the man Christ Jesus. There's no other mediator. God won't receive any other mediator for you. Not your best buddy who prays for you, which is good. Not the Virgin Mary. Nobody else. It's Jesus Christ who's your mediator. And he loves to be your mediator. He died to be your mediator. It is his glory and his pleasure and his joy to be your mediator. What he does for these disciples, he does for you eternally. Hebrews 7 says that he ever lives to intercede for you. Covered you with his holiness. And you are held by him as you stand before the Father. But number two, I believe this passage calls us to revere the Lord for his sovereignty. Jesus says this hard thing. It's hard on our ears. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. How offensive is this to our world? It's offensive. It's hard on many of our hearts. But that betrays something, that consciously or unconsciously, we believe we're owed something. We believe we deserve something. We believe that we're entitled to something. Francis Chan says the two most dangerous lies that our world believes are that, number one, we're good people in ourselves. And number two, that God does not punish us for our sin. And, and our, our objection, our, well, how dare he say that? When we hear Jesus saying, I, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. It betrays that sense that we were subtly brought into that lie, those two lies, that we're good people. 
that God does not punish us for our sin. Folks, the word of God tells us that all mankind, in relation to God, our maker, the one to whom we owe everything, that all mankind has turned away from him and rejected him. That he owes us nothing except wrath that is just. That God's sincere testimony, which he brings us, even on the lips of his son, who lays down his life for us, which, which when you see how much he loves us and how far he's willing to go to carry our sins to the cross, it only lends more legitimacy to the truth he tells us that apart from his work, we are all dead in sin and under his father's wrath. Now listen, God does love the world. And we will see that shortly in this prayer. If not today, we'll see it in, in great spades next week. But, but in, in this breath, Jesus is declaring... God does not owe us anything. It is only his father's gracious patience and mercy that allows anyone to come to him, to see his glory and love it, to hear his truth and accept it and become an object of his son's fervent prayer here is a miracle of God's grace. It is not anything that we are entitled to or can demand. And if we believe that, it will be corrosive on our relationship with God and destructive to the truth of the gospel that we need to hold on to and share with other people. And it also runs completely contrary to the heart and spirit of the Lord's words here. But there's a good side to this in a sense that it also elucidates the affection and the extreme fervent focus he has on those who is his. For if he loves the world as he does, and that is true, even those who have rejected him, even those who are lost till the day they die, and he loves them in a certain way that is absolutely true, those who belong to him are the focus of his jealous, jealous, ravenous affection. If I'm at a park or a grocery store or a pool, I have a general concern for the safety of all the kids around. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, looking out for them. But if something's not right, if, if somebody looks like they might be in trouble, I care about that. That affects my heart. But listen, don't mess with my kids. <laughs> don't mess with my girl. You want to really mess me up as a pastor who's trying to love my enemies? Like, mess with my girl, man. <laughs> like, make her cry or do something to her that's, that, that upsets her in, in a really weird way. Like, I'm going to have to, like, find a new job, probably. <laughs> I hope I wouldn't. But, but my point is that God has a jealous affection for you. That, that though he loves the world, he doesn't have for the world. That you're the object of his fervent prayer. Now, having brought the apostles before God in his words and having explained the privilege they have implicitly to be before God, Jesus now prays stuff for them. So heading to, the second heading today, the, the other only heading today, is what Jesus prays for the disciples. What he prays for the disciples. Starting in verse 11, and we'll go through to 19. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And there he's speaking of Judas. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak to the world, that they may have joy 
fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world. Just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sakes, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. So what is Jesus praying for his disciples here? Well, it's multifaceted, but at the very top, I, I, I think of the word safety. He's saying, God, keep them safe. Protect these people. I'm going away. I won't be able to keep tabs on them like I did for the last three years. They're going to be among some pretty dangerous folks who hate them and want to kill them. They're going to be in a world that's dangerous. So Jesus says, please keep them safe. But how does he say keep them safe? What's, what's the means of their safety? Does he say, Lord, protect them from Caesar. Protect them from the Jewish leaders. Or maybe in our vernacular, Lord, give them a Glock and an assault rifle. <laughs> or Lord, please give them a fixed 30-year mortgage with a low interest rate so they might find safety and security while they're on earth. Or God, please give them someone other than Trump or Hillary. Or, God, give them good looks and a great brain so they might be popular and Princeton-bound. God, give them a drug that will kill their cancer. Lord, give them peace from their derelict and cold husband. He doesn't pray any of that. He says, Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. I guarded them. Not one of them was lost, except for Judas. Well, first, what does he mean, keep them in your name, as this means of keeping them safe? I have kept them in your name. Remember, name of God. We're coming back to the theme of glory again, I believe. The name of God represents who God is, his character. The public display of that name is his glory. Jesus, I believe, is saying here, God, Father, keep these people seeing and believing and loving the truth of who you are in me. Keep them seeing this and believing this truth of who you are in me. Keep them savoring it and feeding on it and depending on it and living off of it and celebrating it. The truth of who you are in me. Keep my dying and my rising for them, my ascending for them, my interceding for them. Keep that before their eyes. His prayer for the 11 here and for all of us in this room is that the truth of who he is And what that says about his father would ever be before us, keeping us, keeping us from spiritual ruin. And that is why Judas is contrasted here. When Jesus says this word about Judas, Judas is alive and well. Though the God of 
the God of glory. It never penetrated his heart. By worldly terms, on this evening, Judas is much safer than these 11 men. He had fled to the world. He was embraced by the Pharisees. He had money. He had friends in high places. But Jesus calls him a son of destruction. Jesus says he is not safe. Later, Jesus will say it will have been better for him if he had never been born. That is not safety. By contrast, all, well, 11 of the 12 who are sitting with Jesus, or 11 of the 12 apostles, most of whom are sitting with Jesus, will probably all be martyred and murdered for Jesus. And yet they will be kept eternally safe because till the day they're martyred, they will be seeing the glory of God and the person of Jesus Christ and surviving by that eternally. For them, death is a bridge to the best that they could ever imagine and beyond forever. Safe forever in loving embrace of Jesus and his father. We see this in verse 14. The means of Jesus keeping these men safe. I have given them your word. Another way of saying, I have shown them who you are. I've revealed the truth about you. Jesus goes on to say, the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. A takeaway from this for me. Folks, we have got a bigger problem in this world than a horrible president or ISIS or cultural decay or racism or hard marriages or depression or job frustrations or lung disease or church conflicts or middle school bullies or feeling like a nerd or getting dumped. We've got a much bigger problem than those things. Now, I'm not saying those things aren't formidable and painful, and they are, and God cares. He is afflicted in all of our affliction, the Bible says. When we feel like we're a nerd and getting picked on, he is afflicted. But what is really dangerous is that we have an enemy. Jesus calls him the evil one. He is talking about the devil who wants to use all those things and more to entice us through sinful, unbelieving hearts inside us to entice us away from God's glory and the hope we have in Christ and to destroy us with false glory and with false safety. False glory and false safety, it will look different for all of us. It it may look like the attraction of of property, of money, greed. It it looks like the refuge of anger and bitterness. It looks like the hope of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness and moralism. It can look for me like the idols of ease and entertainment. For some of us, it it looks like the the laurel of sexual immorality and the comfort that that will bring. It it, It will look like the pride of divisions and hanging on to our right Others, it will look like false teaching and heresy that compromises the most gracious words of God and the hardest words of God with easy lies of the world. So Jesus says, keep them safe. Keep them safe from this evil world. Keep them safe from Satan. 
And how? Yes, God will do that. But how will he do that? And I believe verse 17 gives us the answer. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Do you see we're coming back again to the display of who God is, to his glory? Lord, keep them beholding your truth, who you are. Let them see everything in this world in light of that truth. And they will be protected. Because number one, Jesus prays that they will be protected. And because they will invest in his word and hold on to his word and care about his word. Because that's what Jesus is praying for them. So Jesus prays likewise for us that we will be set apart from the destruction of the world, that we will be protected from the evil one by seeing and believing and staking our lives on the revelation of God and Jesus Christ or the way he puts it here, by being set apart by his truth and not being lured away by the lies of this false hope that the world gives us in all kinds of different forms. About this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, D.A. Carson writes. This can only mean that the means Jesus expects his father to use as he sanctifies his followers is the truth. The father will immerse Jesus' followers in the revelation of himself in his son. Back to glory. He will sanctify them by sending the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, to guide them into all truth. Jesus' followers will be set apart from the world, reserved for God's service insofar as they think and live in conformity with the truth. The word of revelation, supremely mediated through Christ, the revelation now embodied in the pages of this book. Carson goes on to say, in practical terms, no one can be sanctified or set apart for the Lord's use without learning to think God's thoughts after him without learning to live in conformity with the word he has graciously given. By contrast, the heart of worldliness, of what makes the world the world, listen for the echoes of Roman one here, Romans 1 here. What makes the world the world is the fundamental suppression or denial of the truth, profound rejection of God's gracious word, his self-disclosure in Christ. Or the way Paul would put it, the wrath of God is upon all mankind because they have suppressed the truth about God in their unrighteousness. How's everybody doing here? Ready to fall asleep? Just got a little bit of ways to go here. Who's going to tell me yes? My family would probably tell me yes. You know, sometimes when I think about applications in our sermons, and my sermons particularly, I feel that every single application is going to land on, ladies and gentlemen, have your quiet time. And that you will grow weary of hearing that and say to us instead, hey, you know what, Albert, instead of living hope, why don't we call our church Little Church of the Quiet Time? But listen, folks, it's not about having a neat little quiet time. It's about life and death. It's about seeing truth and living or seeing lies and dying. Little by little. 
every day. It's about believing lies that will eventually destroy us or believing truth that will preserve us into, even in the struggle, joy into eternal life. It's about 2 Corinthians 2.18. And we all who with unveiled faces, God has opened our eyes. We contemplate the Lord's glory. And as we do, Paul says, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. It's about what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. By this gospel you're saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, Hold firmly to the word of your salvation in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. It's about Hebrews 2 saying to us, we must pay closer attention to the truth of what we've heard, lest we drift away and fall short of the salvation that has been offered to us in Jesus Christ. It's about Ephesians 3, praying that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, that this is our life. And listen, it doesn't mean that, that all you do is you just read your Bible every morning for an hour. That, that's not what it means, or for however long. It, it doesn't mean just reading your scriptures. But it doesn't mean less than that. Spurgeon said, I love this quote, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. It means through reading his truth, listening to his truth, hearing it from friends, saying it to him in prayer, singing it in your car, you are beholding who God is in Jesus. You are feeding on his forgiveness. You're feeding on his righteousness. You're feeding on his holiness. You're feeding on his call and his commandments in your life that can only be fulfilled through his power and his strength as you cry out to him for it in the crucible of trials. This happens in little and big ways in our lives. Sometimes, sometimes the bigness comes. Years of our lives, entire lives are changed because we're provoked by the Spirit to commit more deeply to stay in front of God's truth than we ever have before. That changed my life in 1996. I, I struggled to, to be in front of His truth in various ways, but something happened that year that God just gave me grace to see the importance of it. I, I hadn't. Sometimes it happens in little tiny battles every day. I, I talked about this a month ago, but it happened again. Message prep is almost always hard for me. I, I love it. I love preaching his word. I love studying it, but it is a battle. It's a battle for Andrew, Chris. Anyone who goes into that place, I think if they're, they're really trying, they're going to find warfare and opposition. And again this week, I've caught myself feeling discouraged and feeling hopeless. I had to send out a second prayer email. <laughs> Um, in those moments, I'm often tempted to anxiety, and then I'm tempted to ease. I'm tempted to feel that, God, it's just not going right. I don't get this. I don't know if he's going to use you or it's going to be terrible. And then I want to escape. I don't want to escape into his arms. I want to escape to Facebook. Just to, just feed me, man. I'll just sit there and just scroll through the blog. And, oh, this person said this. Oh, this guy said this. Or Mike Tyson did this. Or oh, that's interesting. You'll never believe what happened yet. I mean, it's just like scroll. Just. Oh, fill me. Or I go to, I go to sports clip. Federer. 
the glory of the perfect serve. I know that's not very macho, but that's where I go. Like the beauty of Roger Federer, 35 years old. Or I go to a movie website. Like who are Ray's parents? Who are Ray's parents? Tell me. I just want to know for two hours. I just want to know because the sermon isn't going well. I'm just kidding about two hours. But it, it you know, it, it can be bad. The whole thing can be bad. And then I got to take hours to back from my wife or from my kids or from leave because I, you know, listen, social media stuff is not necessarily wrong in itself, but entertainment through social media in our day is a significant stewardship issue, men and women. It is. It is addictive. It is powerful. And it can have a huge and debilitating effect on your ability to see God and to behold him and enjoy him. It's just so easy. I went on vacation. I committed to not look at news or Facebook for two weeks while I was there. I didn't look at news or Facebook for two weeks. I used my Kindle to read books. I read two books. It was so beautiful. It was life-saving. I mean, I got back. I still haven't been able to, to click on CNN or Fox News without pulling right back. I mean, it's just, I hope it lasts for the rest of my freaking life. I just... We've got to make room to behold his glory. We've got to make room in our lives to see his truth. We've got to fight for it. He died to give it to us. So I had that little fit this morning. I was struggling with the message. I didn't want to uh, trudge through it. I just wanted to run to Facebook or something. you know. But, but in the darker the early morning, by God's grace, I fled to a better refuge. I opened up my Bible. I opened to Hebrews 4. Instead of trying to figure out, like, who raised parents are, I saw the glory of God in Jesus Christ. I saw that I have a sympathetic high priest who understands my temptations, who feels for me and my weaknesses when I stray, whose blood ushers me into his father's throne where his father is waiting to lavish grace and mercy on me because now I'm, he's my father and not judgment. Sorry we're going long today. I, I will try to wrap up here. I'm going to close with, with 18 and a couple of little applications. Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. We have much to say about this verse and the verses that follow, but not much today. Briefly, I want us to see that as we continue in this prayer, Jesus is not interested in creating a holy huddle out of these disciples. His prayer for their safety, we will see much, much more next week. His prayer for their safety from the world is also for the salvation of the world. His prayer for their oneness is for our oneness and the oneness of the lost being brought to him. His prayer for their being kept safe is so that millions and millions and millions might one day be kept safe through their message. If Jesus was interested in praying for these disciples, listen folks, if Jesus was interested in praying for those disciples only for themselves, we would all be going to hell today. Because their message never would have reached us. Because his prayer was that their message would go and reach. So there's a driving theme of unity 
for the sake of mission that permeates this prayer as well. And that will be what we'll talk about next week. But as we close today's sermon, I, I just, I would be amiss if I didn't point out two more things briefly. I want to point out the obvious and central truth of this passage once again. Brothers and sisters, Jesus prays for the 11 and he prays for you. Recognize it is God who must keep us safe, just as he did the apostles. I asked at the outset, how did you get here? You got here because God answered Jesus' prayer for these apostles. He kept them safe so they could get his truth to you. And if his prayer for the 11 was answered, our deep hope must be that his prayer that we will be kept safe, which we'll look at next week, that prayer will be answered in our case as well. To deny that it is up to Jesus to keep us and that that's where our hope must be staked, it's not humble. It's a denial of the truth of God's power and love and the sufficiency of Jesus' prayer for you. Many of us who sincerely want to follow Jesus and who do fight to believe him and who do fight to hate our sin the way we should and yet struggle with assurance, many of us are in this room and I I can be among you. And to those of you who are that way, I want to say, take heart, brothers and sisters. Jesus prays for you. Fight to stake your hope on his intercession and the Father's power to keep you and not on your own ability. Lastly, I appeal to all of us. Make the prayer for God's glory to be seen in you through Jesus, the central prayer of your life. Let's do it. <laughs> I got a sign-up table out in the hallway. You can sign up to make it this. I'm just kidding. But, but seriously, this is the prayer we want to pray. This is it. This is the home-run prayer. God, be glorified in my life through Jesus Christ. I know I said this four weeks ago, but it, it's, it's grabbing me. It's staying with me the last few weeks. It means saying, God, show me who you are and show me who you are as you've shown yourself in Jesus. Let me see how wonderful you are. Let me see how saving you are. Let me see how powerful you are. Let me see how beautiful you are. And, and let that come out of me to other people that they might know you and might know how wonderful you are and not me, how great you are and not me. Let me experience what Tim Keller says, the, the gift of self-forgetfulness. Caught up in how wonderful you are. This prayer of Jesus tells us beyond all things what he is up to. And I want to get alongside him and pray for what he prays for and what he's up to. Because that's going to work. Because he's praying for that. And what he's up to is his glory. Him being known among us, in us, through us. Seeing him rightly, that means, yes, trials. That means, yes, crisis. That means, yes, struggles with sin. But it means victory through all those things so that he's glorified in our weaknesses and struggles. And seen, let the greatest and most often cry heard in the courts of heaven from our heart be, Lord, glorify yourself in my life. Show people who you are through me. I sincerely believe that that prayer... That prayer prayed sincerely and persistently will change our lives. May it be our heart cry as a church more and more and more. Above all other hopes and dreams, despite all the costs, God be seen in me, be known by me. 
be known by others through me. Please, please. Let's pray that right now.